Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, so as I've mentioned in my prior episodes, I'm attempting to do this show without any advertisement. I just think it's a better experience. But if you have the financial ability to support our efforts, I would be grateful if you headed over to onecommune.com support. You can contribute a few bucks or join Commune membership and get unlimited access to all of our courses. Thank you, and it's an honor to do this work. Okay, so this is a unique and somewhat confounding episode, and I have invested considerable time thinking about how to best frame it. And candidly, I'm not 100% confident I found the best framing, but here we go. My guest on the show is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He is the son of the New York Senator and U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and the nephew of President John F. Kennedy. Robert is best known as an environmental lawyer and an advocate for environmental justice. He is the president of the board of the Waterkeeper Alliance, a nonprofit environmental group that he helped found in 1999. And for over 30 years, he was a senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. Kennedy has brought and won numerous high-profile lawsuits against large polluters in 2010, he led a Pace University lawsuit, which forced ExxonMobil to clean up tens of millions of gallons of oil from refinery spills in Brooklyn, New York. In 2017, his firm was part of the trial team that secured a $670 million settlement on behalf of over 3,000 residents from Ohio and West Virginia, whose drinking water was contaminated by DuPont. And in 2018, the National Trial Lawyers Association awarded Kennedy trial team of the year for his work winning a $289 million jury verdict against Monsanto for its use of the chemical glyphosate. It is also notable that Kennedy has been a stalwart champion for indigenous peoples. In recent years, Kennedy has been an outspoken critic of Big Pharma, specifically as it pertains to vaccines. He has been dubbed by many as anti-vax, but Kennedy claims to be pro-safe vaccine and contends that vaccines do not undergo sufficient testing. He also suggests a correlation between the escalation in chronic disease and autoimmune disease and the overapplication of vaccines. So my initial purpose for inviting Robert on the show was primarily to provide a platform for him to raise legitimate concerns about vaccination. I think that the inability of many mainstream media outlets to platform a thoughtful discussion on this issue has pushed vaccine skeptics to the thinner edges of the political branch, and the failure to have thoughtful public discourse on this topic has, in many cases, radicalized the movement. With nowhere else to go, some vaccination skeptics have found bedfellows with COVID deniers, QAnon, and other Q-adjacent theories such as mass transmission of COVID through 5G technology. So I agree with Robert insofar that we should be asking questions. For example, what potential adverse reactions to vaccines are listed on the package inserts and why aren't medical professionals required to show patients the insert? Why is Big Pharma immune from class action suits vis-a-vis -vis vaccines? Is this legal shield, known as the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, a good policy? Why is America one of the few countries that allows pharmaceutical companies to advertise? And to what degree are our public health agencies captive to the pharma industry? So I've heard Robert give affable interviews around a broad range of topics. He is whip smart and has many bespoke interests and hobbies. And candidly, my hope going into this interview was to address a wide variety of issues beyond vaccination. However, as you will soon hear, 
A large portion of this interview became a full-fledged assault on Anthony Fauci, both as an individual and as a symbol for public health institutions. Now, Fauci is, of course, the now famous immunologist who has served as the director of NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, since 1984. Some of Kennedy's indictments of Fauci are compelling and warrant further investigation. But in general, Kennedy downplays the lethal threat of COVID-19, even as we approach 200,000 cases and 2,000 fatalities on a daily basis. He paints a broad portrait of a plot between health agencies and the media to disinform the public in order to maximize pharmaceutical profits through the distribution of a vaccine. He lends credence to the use of hydroxychloroquine as a therapeutic for COVID-19. And he questions the efficacy of mask wearing and largely regards it as an abridgment of civil liberties. So, I considered an edit of this podcast that offered contrary studies, opinions, and information during the body of the interview. But in the end, I felt that kind of fact-checking would be annoying and disrespectful to my guest. So I've decided to include a more lengthy and even preamble and let Robert's passionate assertions be judged on their own merits. Now, Kennedy's long career is characterized by a rigorous application of science. And this is perhaps the most confounding part of the interview for me. Now, Kennedy claims to not take a position on masks, for example, and also alleges to have posted a variety of studies on the Children's Health Defense website. However, when I visit the site, I find mostly opinion pieces against mask wearing, some that are quite strident. Kennedy also equates governmental efforts to promote public health through mask wearing as authoritarian overreach. Now, personally, I think most state officials are simply managing this crisis the best they can, walking a tightrope between keeping local economies functional and minimizing fatalities and protecting hospitals from being overrun. I do not think they're engaged in some nefarious, tyrannical plot to surveil people and control their lives. Further, Kennedy's worry about the left's adoption of authoritarianism in the name of public health seems misplaced given the context of our current politics. I mean, right now, we have a sitting president who is denying the results of a legitimate election. He is closing ranks by firing defense and national security officials and impeding a peaceful transfer of power, putting our country at risk. His pathological narcissism and mendacity are undermining public trust in our democracy and sowing discord. This is the true authoritarian threat. As a journalist, and I suppose just as a conscientious human, I take this job seriously. And for better or worse, I have done an inordinate amount of research on mask wearing. You can just go right to the National Institute of Health website and read these studies for a long, long time. I've read about 20 of them, and to be honest, it's pretty boring. But what I've found with regards to these studies is nuance, a variation along a spectrum. Now, there is almost unanimity around the efficacy of N95 respirators. They filter small particles and significantly reduce viral transmission, but they are expensive and uncomfortable to wear for long periods. And surgical masks are generally considered the next best option. Cloth masks are considerably less useful, both because they're not often worn properly and because they are less successful at stopping small particles, but they seem to be better than nothing at protecting the wearer from spreading the virus, depending on whether they are two-ply or three-ply. Neck gaiters seem to be the most ineffective type of mask. And again, the data are nuanced, but overall this practice seems to help. And in my opinion, even if it works a little bit, like 10%, it's a relatively minor inconvenience while we figure this madness out. Now, we might all get this disease, but we don't all want to get it on the same day. And that's for a couple of reasons. Now, we want to buy time for therapeutics or for potentially a safe vaccine. 
But moreover, we do not want hundreds of thousands of people flooding ICUs on the same day. We simply do not have the infrastructure to manage that kind of volume. And this kind of situation will hurl doctors into an untenable position of deciding who they will treat and who will die. This is a public health measure that may save some lives, and I don't believe it should be treated as a political football. Now, I won't go too deeply into the therapeutic use of hydroxychloroquine here, but from everything I can find through my research, I have discovered only tiny trials, not controlled and not randomized, to support the drug's efficacy in minimizing the severity of COVID-19. And I've found many studies that debunk it, but you know, Robert may have access to data that I do not have. He certainly makes a strong case for the cocktail of hydroxychloroquine, zithromycin, and zinc. Lastly, Robert has also become a fierce critic of Facebook, who he sued earlier this year for rejecting ads and for flagging his posts about vaccines and 5G. Now, as a result of his clashes with social media, Robert has become outspoken about First Amendment rights and the perils of censorship. And this cuts to the heart of one of the most complex and dangerous modern societal issues. What role should social media platforms play vis-a-vis the dissemination of misinformation on their platforms? We are experiencing the undermining of social cohesion through the weaponization of false information. For example, despite DHS and election officials from both parties nationwide claiming that 2020 was the most secure election in history, people have been led to believe via their social media feeds that there was mass fraud. Now, Stop the Steal is just the most current instance of fallacy taking hold in the population. 2020 has been riddled with theories that have no basis in fact, including the outrageous, that Joe Biden is a pedophile, that Oprah Winfrey is extracting adrenochrome from Christian babies, that COVID is a hoax, and Bill Gates is installing a microchip in us through mandated vaccine. The adoption of these fantasies have real consequences. So the question is, should social media platforms become more like publishers with codes of ethics and teams of independent fact checkers? What is the tightrope that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube must walk between protecting the population from misinformation and the abridgment of First Amendment rights? And we generally agree that freedom of speech is not unfettered. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. This is so tricky and nuanced. And I wholeheartedly support a public debate about vaccination for which Robert is fighting. You know, if we don't provide platform for legitimate skepticism and opinion, then we push it out into the dark extremes. But where do you draw the line and who draws it? I suppose my last point here is not based in any particular logic. Now, this week I've had two friends who have lost a parent to COVID. And 250,000 people have died of or with the disease. And that may seem like a big number, but in the scope of 330 million Americans, the reality is that very few of us at this juncture have been emotionally impacted by someone dying. But I can tell you that the lives of my two friends have forever changed. I'm not sure how we calculate the loss. But when I witness the pain, the real human suffering that this disease has caused, it reminds me of how absurd it is that it has divided us along political identity. This virus could be a mechanism to unite us in a cause greater than ourselves. Okay, so enough preamble. In the end, I didn't have to publish this episode, but then... I'd perhaps be just as bad as the folks unwilling to platform thoughtful opinion. I find Robert Kennedy to be passionate and fiercely intelligent. And despite not always agreeing with him, I am grateful that he took the time to be on the show. And you'll judge it for yourself. May the best ideas cream to the top. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune.
Welcome, Robert Kennedy Jr. to the podcast. Um, just up front, I'd, I'd like to express a, a note of gratitude for your public service and, and the service of your family, um, particularly uh, your work and commitment to environmental advocacy and holding big, mean corporations to account for dubious environmental practices uh, that endanger our public health. So we owe you great debt for that. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so there's many topics I, I'd like to probe, um, including COVID uh, and obviously some of the recent news from Pfizer and, and I suppose to a lesser extent Moderna um, regarding the developments of their mRNA vaccines or, or the 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 trial, the third trial completions. Um, would also love to talk about censorship and sort of the tug of war between censorship and misinformation. Um, and hopefully we can get to some issues around climate and, and existential climate threats. But I figure since I'm sure you've sat in the Oval Office at, at some point, um, and since there were a number of your family that were presidential candidates, and obviously your uncle that was president. I wonder if you have any comments regarding our recent election, um, any optimism or lack thereof of the impending Biden administration, and, and any sort of reservations or, or nervousness about Trump's current refusal to concede? I think the... Um I mean, I, I think that Biden will do a lot better on the environment. So that's, you know, something less to worry about. I think in terms of the kind of, you know, what I worry about, this kind of totalitarian agenda and the abandonment by the liberal um, party and and the Democratic Party of the of its revulsion for censorship um, and its you know its advocacy its championship for the for the First Amendment freedoms particularly but all the freedoms right to jury trial which are has been abolished when it comes to vaccines um, the right to assembly the you know the religious um, uh, independence rights, the rights to petition government, and um, particularly the First Amendment rights of, of free speech. I think that's very worrying. And the kind of the onset of this all has all of the indicia of a, of a growing and, and ultimately an authoritarian surveillance state. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm worried about that. I'm worried that um, there's kind of a, among liberal Democrats, and really this was in many ways a reaction to Trump, that liberal Democrats see Tony Fauci as a hero. And I've dealt with Tony Fauci for, for many decades and see him completely differently as somebody who's really turned this country over to the pharmaceutical companies. Um, who's seen an explosion of in the 50 years since he took over at NIAID, uh, where his job is to prevent, to track down allergic diseases, autoimmune diseases. Uh, we've seen an explosion of chronic disease. We've gone since he took over um, as the head of NIAID in 1984, we've seen an explosion of chronic disease from about 12% of American children to 54%, and literally zero effort by Anthony Fauci to understand what the etiology of those diseases are, and actually active efforts to kill studies on the environmental exposures that may be causing these disease epidemics whether it's chemical exposure, vaccines, EMFs, and all the kind of principal suspects out there. And we've become a nation that's addicted to pharmaceutical drugs, where we, we use more pharmaceutical drugs than anybody else. And 
in the world. We pay the highest prices for them. And pharmaceutical drugs are now the third biggest killer of Americans. And what Tony Fauci does, most people don't know this, he is the principal incubator for pharmaceutical drugs in our country. So Tony Fauci gives out $7.6 billion a year. And that money does not go to primary research on, you know, where are these diseases coming from? How did autism go from one in every 10,000 people in my generation to one in every 34 children today? How did food allergies suddenly appear in 1989, like peanut allergies? Why are we seeing this extraordinary explosion of neurodevelopmental diseases, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, SIDS, on the autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, which just have exploded. And then, um, you know, the, uh, all of the, of course, all the allergic diseases, not only food allergies, but asthma, eczema, which, you know, I'd never heard of when I was a kid, and now it's everywhere. We don't see any research on those topics. Uh, what, and he doesn't use the money for that. What he does with that money is he distributes it to about 1,300 what they call principal investigators who are high-level uh, academic doctors at big research institutions like Columbia, NYU, Baylor University, Stanford, every university with a, with a university hospital or medical school and to develop new drugs. And then his agency splits the patents on those drugs and collects royalties on them when they transfer it from the college to a for phase two, phase three trials to the big pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, we all know with Moderna that Tony Fauci's agency owns half the patents. They stand to make billions of dollars. And six of his underlings at NIAD also have pieces of those patents by which they will collect $150,000 each per year for life. And Tony Fauci has pushed that vaccine, which has which has really serious problems, with literally a 100% injury rate in the phase uh, three trials um, and, phase, and phase one trials and very serious injury rates to 21% of the people who are the very healthy people who took the high dose in the phase one trial and a 6% injury rate to the people who took the low dose. And these are, you know, only, only the extremely healthy people. So this is a medication that if it was any other medicine, it would be dead on arrival. And yet it has been pushed to the front of the pack by Anthony Fauci, who controls the committees that that create the protocols for the clinical trials and then ultimately green light the drug to emergency use authorization. Uh, so I, you know, see Tony Fauci as somebody who's a complete captive of the pharmaceutical companies. They, they are you know, they serve the same purpose. They've kept him in business for 50 years. He's like J. Edgar Hoover of pharma. Um, you know, he. you have to wonder why all of the people in that agency who have stood up to pharma, people like Bernice Eddy, like uh, John Anthony Martin, like Judy Mikovits, have been crushed by that agency and thrown out and disposed of. And the only way you can stay alive in that agency for 50 years is by being in the tank with the pharmaceutical companies. And that's exactly who he is. So it worries me that there's this kind of blind trust by the democratic party and, you know, a very, very open um, and almost childlike trust by Joe Biden or Anthony Fauci, um, and you know, and 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 there's this kind of mantra that you hear: let's trust the experts, or we'll trust Tony Fauci. We'll do whatever he says. But Tony Fauci is not an expert on the economy. He's not an expert on telling us 
how many people are dying because of the quarantine or because of deferred um, medical treatment or because of disruptions in the supply chain for food and medicines in this country and around the world? How many people are dying from unemployment, from the distress of that? Um, and, you know, from suicides, from heart attacks, from hypertension. He has no expertise in those things. And by the way, I've been suing polluters for 40 years. And every trial that I've done, there are experts on both sides. And they both make convincing arguments that are diametrically opposed to each other. Well, yeah. so saying trust the experts is kind of a, it's, it's almost like an oxymoron. It's because the experts don't agree with each other. You know, doctors don't agree with each other. They want, you know, that's why we get second opinions. And yet none of the Democrats are asking Tony Fauci for a, for a second opinion. And, you know, Trump made a lot of grumbling about Fauci, but he never actually controlled him. He let him get away with spending $18 billion on vaccines and only $1.46 billion on therapeutics and and um, and off-the-shelf medications that actually could solve this problem very, very quickly. Oh. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that. I mean, certainly, uh, I think one could make a convincing argument that Trump was very fixated on a kind of Operation Warp Speed uh, to serve the economy, um, to protect, you know, his reelection bid, and um, you know, uh, certainly, haste and science are are not great bedfellows. Um, but it does seem like that there has been some progress, uh, despite lack of funding in uh, therapeutics. And I'm, I'm interested to kind of get your, your viewpoint on things like monoclonal antibodies or, or CPT, convalescent plasma therapy. And if, do you think that those kinds of therapeutics can scale uh, to meet the scale of the problem. And I suppose maybe there's even a conversation behind that to set some foundational <laughs> parameters around what we think the scale of the problem actually is. But, you know, what are your hopes for therapeutics? And then, you know, maybe we can also get into the science of the kind of messenger RNA um, uh, vaccines, which seems to be quite different than, than prior vaccines. But, but maybe you could just address some of your more hopeful areas of, of well, therapeutic you know, I, development. Listen, you know, I'm not a doctor. And um, I what, what, what I do is what I've done for 40 years, which is to read the science. And um, what I've seen with Anthony Fauci is that he has a bias for new patentable vaccines in medicine and a bias against treatments where there are not a lot of profits for pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, one of the things that I, one of the sort of aspects of his decision-making that I've, uh, I've looked into a lot and actually written about and uh, and and really investigated the science is the episode of hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the science on hydroxychloroquine, it's very clear that there are probably over a hundred studies now, and while we have them listed on CHD's website. That say that hydroxychloroquine works when it, and they're all, not all, they're not, um, you know, double blind placebo studies. Right. A lot of them are case studies, you know, from smaller cohorts, a couple of hundred patients or doctor, whatever. Um, but they're the kind of evidence that people normally rely on, and doctors and scientists rely on um, when there's when there aren't more formalized studies. There's perfectly reliable science. 
you can't, you might not be able to say it definitely works from this, but the suggestion is there's so much consistency that when, when hydroxychloroquine is given early on in the first seven days after the onset of symptoms with a um, cocktail of zithromycin and zinc, that it dramatically reduces the serious infections in people in hospitalization. So in some studies, the reduction is 90% in many of them. In virtually all of them, it's at least 50%. And then you look at the studies that um, that Dr. Fauci relied on to kill hydroxychloroquine, and those studies are clearly fraudulent. And they were designed to show that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous, that causes heart attacks and causes death. And the way that the researchers achieved that was by giving four or five times the lethal dose to people. And those studies, the three major studies upon which FDA and World Health Organization constructed their verdict against hydroxychloroquine, those studies in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet all had to be withdrawn, except for the JAMA one. The JAMA one, the authors are actually being prosecuted for murder by the Brazilian police. But the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, uh, to their great humiliation, had to admit that those studies were absolutely fraudulent. And yet we have a national healthcare policy. And, you know, the industry was trying to kill that drug from the outset because it's a 65-year-old drug. It costs pennies per dose. And if there is an existing drug that has FDA approval, it's illegal for the FDA to give emergency use, use authorization to any vaccine or to any competitive medication. So, oh, the $18 billion vaccine enterprise was completely grounded based. The foundation of that was making sure that Anthony Fauci could kill hydroxychloroquine. And there was a concerted orchestrated effort. From, this is long before Trump took his position. I mean, the worst thing for hydroxychloroquine is that Trump endorsed it. And that immediately discredited in the eyes of liberals. You know, they put it in the, the same waste bin as his, you know, his his climate change denial and his his advice that people should um, inject bleach for COVID. So they said, oh, yeah, that, you know, hydroxychloroquine is part of that insanity. Um, but in fact, if you actually divorce yourself from what's happening politically and you look at the science, it's very clear that hydroxychloroquine is working and that the industry needed to kill it in order to push profitable drugs like remdesivir, which Tony Fauci came out of his shop, and Moderna's vaccine, which came out of his shop too. And by the way, uh, let me just say this. Tony Fauci is such an important incubator for new pharmaceutical products that between 2009 and 2016, 100% of the medications, of new medications that were approved by FDA came out of his system. And those, you know, that means that in most cases, he probably has patents. His agency has patents on those. And so if you look at that, you know, you get an understanding of how this system works, that he is part of the pharmaceutical industry, and we should not be putting national policies, you know, we we need to look at at his record and who he is before we say, we're going to put you in charge of national policy. The other thing about Tony Fauci that we need to worry about is we need to ask questions about whether he had anything to do with the creation of this virus. And I'm not saying he deliberately released it or that he even accidentally released it or he had anything to do with the release. Uh, but the, the the dots have been connected between him and the Wuhan lab 
lab and his funding was over $7 million for these gain-of-function studies that were designed and that successfully created coronavirus, uh, generic coronaviruses. That means, you know, basically manipulated coronaviruses that were designed to be super virulent and transmissible to human beings. So the weaponization of coronavirus. And, you know, this is not a secret. This is not controversial. Anthony Fauci was a champion of those kind of studies for decades, since 2002. Um, He was ordered to stop those studies in 2014 by President Obama. Because uh, 400 scientists wrote letter, signed a letter to President Obama asking them to shut down Tony Fauci's gain-of-function studies. And instead of doing that, he moved them offshore to Wuhan and, you know, went into partnership with the Chinese military and began producing those studies in those kind of, um, you know, very, very dangerous viruses in Wuhan. And we don't know for sure that it was one of those that escaped, although, um, you know, there's plenty of evidence and there are there are there are investigations by international bodies and by NIH and by others to figure out whether those studies that Tony Fauci funded resulted in the creation of the virus that we now call COVID-19. So. And I'm not saying that, it, that that is true, but I think the question needs to be asked. And it's a weird thing to me that nobody in the press, because all of this is out there. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is stuff that we know about that's been written about in Newsweek and um, Time and the New York Times and elsewhere. And yet nobody has asked Tony Fauci the key questions. And that is a very weird thing to me. You know, where are, you know, liberals are supposed to be, are supposed to be skeptical towards government, big government and and big concentrations of power, you know, the corporate control of government agencies. We're supposed to be fighting those things. And yet when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry, many of the people in my party are blind. Hmm. So... I wonder, you know, because I think we all can agree on some basic um, facts and notions around SARS-CoV-2 and and COVID-19, that it is a virus with its own genetic sequence. It seems fairly highly transmissible. I mean, I don't know if you know what the R-naught is, but what I've read is somewhere around two, two and a half. It's hard to know, actually, just because of the um, of, of testing. But I guess to give it a um, for some con- yeah, for when some you, when you say there's a, there's a number of things we can agree about, I'm wondering what you're going to say because I think there's been so much of a, a apparently deliberate effort. I mean, incompetence at this level would be equally shocking but almost a deliberate effort to obscure not only the origins, but also to not give us the kind of science that we, that we really need to know to make rational policy judgments. So, you know, I've seen on CDC's website, the estimates for the IFR, which is the infection fatality ratio. And those ratios for people who are under, 60, the IFRs are a tiny fraction of what the seasonal flu IFR is. So the seasonal flu is 0.1. And for people under 20, the IFR for COVID is 0.00003. So four zeros and then a three. Right. I mean, I, I think that there is general consensus that the disease is not particularly fatal, uh, that it seems to impact it's certain, fatal to older people. Right. And, co- and, and those with comorbidities. And right. in some ways, it's, it's relatively high transmissibility and its low fatality rate 
it seems like it, it, that's kind of good news, but in a way it's not because there seems to be the opportunity for asymptomatic spread. And, you know, if it was more lethal, there would be more reason for quarantine and lockdown and people would potentially be taking it, quote unquote, more seriously. And we might be able to kind of get our arms around it. Now, this is just like, let's leave the public health uh, corruption just out of it, just to the to the side of this conversation just for a moment. But I think that we, if we can try to find, you know, basic foundational facts, and I honestly, I, I don't have a position here. I'm just trying to kind of exhume the truth the best I can. Um, but it seems like right now there is a spike in cases, and some of that might be attributable to more testing, but it does seem that there is a legitimate spike in cases and an, and a spike in fatalities related to COVID, particularly impacting these groups that I think that that we've already discussed. And this is kind of in the backdrop of what I think would we can generally say is around 300,000 excess deaths over the course of, of the year. And then there's a bunch of things that we just don't know because science moves slow. So we don't know the long-term effects on the renal system or vascular system or long-term neurological impact. So I, I wonder if you were the president of the United States or Tony Fauci, um, what would be a sane, common-sense approach to dealing with COVID-19 that could address both the virus from a public health perspective, but also from a political perspective? I would want enough. I mean, I would want more data um, before I would recommend a policy because I've seen, you know, the policies that seem to be working at least to some extent, how they've worked in Sweden, kind of the opposite policy that's worked very well in New Zealand, but made it so it's a permanent island that you know nobody can ever visit um and then what they're doing in vietnam which you know and what is cause what what's allowing the success in vietnam and also in china and in nicaragua and a lot of that seems to do with just using more efficient pcr tests you say there's 300 excess deaths or 300 i'm not sure where you get that number um, you know, CDC, as you know, CDC says, acknowledges that I think 94% of the deaths have comorbidities. I have at least two, on average, 2.8 or 2.6 um, comorbidities. And that, and we've also seen these profound drops in deaths from pneumonia, from flu basically that have gone to zero during the same periods. We have to ask ourselves, are the people dying, really dying of, of COVID or are they people who are dying with COVID, you know, and with COVID as tested by PCR tests mm-hmm. that are bedeviled by false negatives. I mean, false positives. Yeah. And, you know, so I would really want to get a good handle on the numbers and, Let's say the number is um, 200,000. Well, that makes it essentially the same as the 1969 swine flu. Yeah. And in 1969, we had a swine flu that killed 100,000 Americans, and there was no lockdown, and there were no masks, there was no disruption to our economy. And most of us, you know, we went to Woodstock that year. Um, there was, uh, um, you know, there were, it, it was, and it's 68, 69, we had the Chicago riots during the Democratic Convention. We had the full Democratic Convention. And this was during the height of the swine flu epidemic. That was apparently around the same intensity as, and, and lethality as the current one. So uh, I would want to, 
you know, I really think it's important that we have data. Is this, for example, is this more lethal than tuberculosis? Tuberculosis is a viral respiratory infection that kills 1.5 million people every year. And yet we don't go around with masks and we're not told to stay at home and we don't shut down the economy. And it is extremely transmissible. And so I think it's important for us to to have it for the response to be proportional. And And in order to understand whether the response is proportional, we need to have some honest numbers about what is actually happening. And I don't think we have those numbers. And I think I believe that's deliberate. I do not believe that there's this level of incompetence where they will not be able to tell us and then post on the television networks. Mm -hmm. Here is the infection fatality rate for a flu. Here's the infection fatality rate for COVID. I would say this, never in history have we locked down healthy people during an epidemic. We, um, you know, I think it's the, the, probably the approach, and I cannot say this for sure again, because I don't know the numbers, but probably the best approach is to allow, is to, allow the people for whom this is essentially much less harmless than harmful than a flu to allow those people out to circulate to even to catch the disease and develop herd immunity and then spend what essentially would be whatever we need to spend a, a tiny fraction of what we're spending now out the damage to do we're doing to the economy but spend that money really well spent in protecting people who have comorbidities and the fragile elderly, not lock them all in, you know, in nursing homes. And that's the solution. It'd be better to give them each their own independent house. And it would be about one thousandth of the cost and home permanent home care as, as doing what we're doing now, you know, the, the current response to the epidemic is destroying our economy for generations and really dismantling the new deal. All of these social programs that are going to collapse from lack of funding that have built the American middle class. And so, you know, my, I also, I don't know because, you know, the, the PCR testing is so deceptive. We don't know whether the PCR is picking up people who had a common cold five years ago. And then CNN is telling them, oh, the inf- telling us, oh, the infection is spreading. And it really is a case epidemic. It's, uh, it's really not spreading, but more people appear to have it because we're just testing more. Yeah. And that the tests themselves, because of the, you know, it's a, it's not a good test. My understanding, it uses one DNA strand, which is supposed to be unique to coronavirus, uh, to COVID-19. My understanding is that in Vietnam, they use five strands in their PCR. And the reason that Vietnam looks so successful, and I don't know this for a fact, but this is what I've heard that the reason that Vietnam looks so successful is because they're actually only reporting cases that are actually people who are experiencing COVID infections and are therefore transmissible. And really, that's what we should be shooting for. But we don't know the answer to those questions. We don't know. I mean, I've seen interviews with Kerry Mullis, and I've read his statements about the PCR and, you know, he's the guy who invented it, won the Nobel Prize, and he said it's absolutely worthless as a diagnostic tool. And yet that is our national diagnostic tool. He said it, it tells you almost nothing about you, that, that, that these viruses are ubiquitous, that a lot of exposures are harmless and that you ha- end up with viral fragments in your blood in you know, these minuscule amounts of one per tr- part per trillion. 
that the PCR test, by amplifying that signal, can find them in almost anybody. And it just depends on how high you crank it up. If you crank it up to 60 amps, it, 100% of the population you can find it in. And so it is the fact that we're using 35 amps as our metric. Is that a rat? Is that telling us anything that we really need to know? And I don't feel comfortable making, you know, policy descriptions because I don't understand what's happening. And as I said, I think a lot of it is deliberately opaque, you know, and then you have the television networks out there just trying to scare the hell out of everybody every day. Yeah. Well, sir, you're not telling us, not telling us here's, you know, the death rate. We never see that on TV. We never see the graphs of the death rates. We don't see the graphs of the hospitalization rates. Those are metrics that would actually be useful. All they'll tell us is the infection rates, and they're basing that on PCRs that we know, you know, is utterly, that its own inventors as utterly worthless as a diagnostic tool. Yeah. I mean, I think what, some of this points to is our inability in our modern society to actually cohere around any kind of set of facts or, or some sort of inner subjective truth. Um, because I mean, certainly if, if you put those graphs on the air, the response to that would be, well, this is just not that serious. So, like, you know, my personal hygiene or my social distancing or mask wearing or any of this um, kind of behavioral shifts that that one might um, promote aren't necessary because, look, there's only a point zero 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 four chance um, that that I'm going to catch this and die. And I, you know, and, and I think you know, I've read like the Great Barrington Declaration. I think it's called. I'm sure you're familiar with it too, that, that makes a case for kind of natural herd immunity. I don't know what that number is, but 45 to 60% of the population contracts it, um, it you know, will hit, will hit a, um, a, a level of herd immunity. And, and during that, that period, you know, we can protect um, our vulnerable. And, in you know, I think, you know, you make, a good point is that we just don't know a lot of this stuff is we don't know. And a lot of it, you know, might be, uh, you know, due to, um, the, the opacity of, of our public health institutions, but also I, you know, it does. I mean, there has been a capture of the media by the pharmaceutical industry. There's a capture of the regulatory agencies by the pharmaceutical industry and our political system. And, you know, we're all being funneled into this funnel, not only of surveillance, but also of, you know, that their only hope is vaccines. And, right. you know, there's a lot of unknowns about the lethality of the disease, about its transmissibility, how it operates. There's even more lack of transparency and public debate, which you need or whether or not these policies work, you know, does the lockdown work? I don't, I don't see any convincing evidence that it does do mass work. You know, you can go to our website, CHD, and we don't take a position on mass, but the great bulk of the scientific, we, we just have a page where we, Put, we summarize every scientific study we've been able to find. And virtually every study, and there are many of them prior to 2020, said that the masks don't work, even in hospitals, they don't work. You know, and there are dozens of studies. We have a whole section just in hospital studies. There the biggest hospital in, in London an experiment in 1981 where it got it it made all of its doctors and all of its surgeons abandon masks for six months and then it did you know comparative infection rates death rates um etc and found out that the patients were doing much better 
when surgeons and doctors didn't wear masks. And so there's a lot of mythology around masks. And what I want to know is, where's the debate? Yeah. Where's the due process? If somebody is going to mandate you to wait, you know, the whole nation to wear masks, let's have a national debate about it. Yeah. Don't tell me I can't go on Anderson Cooper and talk about science that's contrary. Yeah. Well, I believe that you absolutely. Or on Facebook or on on Google, where we're, we're censored if you post one of these scientific studies. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there is conflicting studies in science, particularly around masks. I mean, obviously, the University of Washington studies get referred to a lot of in the mainstream press. I know I've read some of the primary source data from studies I mean, in, in those, Vietnam. Those studies, those studies yeah. oh, are a joke because... Those are modeling studies. Right. You know, I'm talking about bench studies. Modeling studies, you whatever garbage is garbage in, garbage out. If you say, you know, the mass, you, you have to start with the assumption that the mass will stop transmissibility. And that's what the University of Washington does. It says we if we wear them, 130,000 people won't get sick, but they have no – what if the masks don't work at all? What if the masks actually increase transmissibility, as many of the studies indicate it does? Yeah, so what even – but do you, do you think that – Washington models are just complete you know, bullshit. Right, but like let's look at the – I know there was a number of studies in Vietnam that looked across all the different mask types, for example, and, and we don't have to – hover on masks too long because i think you know there's there's other issues to tackle but that there does seem to be some consensus at least around the n95 respirator and the way that the fabric is cross hatched to stop small particles or at least decelerate small particles from spreading through the air and obviously this has been a common practice in, in asia for you know 60, 70 years, um, that if one would sneeze or cough or talk loudly, that droplets would be decelerated through some sort of covering to different levels of efficacy, like the gator that seems... study like that, foot binding was a practice in Asia for hundreds of years, and we don't do it anymore. You know, leeches were a practice in medicine for hundreds of years, a hundred years at least, and we don't do that anymore. So we have a capacity actually now to do real science and to measure impacts. And the studies you're talking about, first of all, I will concede that there's studies on both sides. The studies that we have posted, which are all the studies we could find, where we post the seven CDC studies, which are recent studies, and they say mass work. But we have probably 100 studies that say they don't. Yeah. And, 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 but some of those, but you can find a study that says, yeah, it, it reduces, um, you know, drop size and particle acceleration. But that study is not telling you whether it's improving transmiss it, it's it's diminishing transmissibility. Oh, you have to. But here's the the bottom line: is the bottom line is government should not be imposing these kind of mandates, which are dramatic have dramatic effects on people. Okay, on democracy, on freedom, on you know that the the idea that a government and instruct you to wear a mask on your face and, and, and without looking at the impacts to your, uh, to your community, to your sociability, to, um, to, on, on issues like depression, on issues of communication and suicide and all of these kind of things. And also co2 impacts and the you know the, the the what happens when you trap all of those droplets on the inside of the mask mm-hmm. and they become media for the bacteria there's a lot of studies that say that yeah. what i would say is government we have a process in this country that when we want to pass a rule that's going to have those kind of impacts on our society we go through notice and comment rulemaking we either go through a legislative process 
or we go through notice and comment rulemaking. So the, the agency, the Department of Health, will publish a proposed rule. And that proposed rule will say, we're going to have masks in all public places um, at, that are indoors. So it will be a rule that is reasonable. And, and then it'll say, and then the government has to publish an environmental impact statement, a regulatory impact statement, an economic impact statement. And it says, here's the regulatory impact statement. Here are all the studies that we believe support this rule. And here's our reason for passing this rule. And then here's the impacts of the rule on the society. And here's the impacts of the rule on the economy. Then you have a comment period where people can, who are affected by the rule can send in their contrary opinions, their tweaks to the rule, et cetera. And the agency has to respond to those. And then you have a hearing that is an administrative hearing that is like a court trial where there's an administrative judge and the agency comes in and gives its arguments for the rule and brings its witness in. And the other side then can cross-examine those witnesses and they can bring their own witnesses and they get cross-examined by the agency. And then you have closing arguments and then the judge makes a recommendation. And that is how democracy works. It's called due process of law. All of that was abandoned here. Yes. Nothing like that ever happened. We were just told, shut your mouth, do what you're told. Yeah, well, there is no mask. There is no mask what? mandate, to be fair. And I would also just say that oh, well, there are mask mandates. Of course, there are in the state where I live. Yeah. We have mask mandates. We have, you know, a, a governor who passed an executive order, and that's true in a lot of other states as well. Where police are arresting people, hmm. and that you know is not American. That is not democracy. Uh, and it's uh, not a good scientific uh, method either because there's no airing of the science. Yeah. There's just some guy, Tony Fauci, who says in March, masks don't work. And then he says in June, everybody's got to wear a mask. And he never tells the study that made him change his mind. It's all arbitrary and it's all by fiat and there's no democracy. And, you know, he, listen, if you're in a state of emergency, you can do those kind of things. A state of emergency ends after two weeks, and then you have to make time for democracy. Yeah, and that was never done, and that should be offensive to every American. Uh, and I think it is. I mean, I absolutely support your position for public debate and and the notion that in a marketplace of ideas, the best ideas tend to cream to the top. But I, I would also point to, and I don't know how we kind of get at this, but the countries that seem to have had greater success in managing the virus tend to be countries that have um, a greater appreciation for the collective good and individual sacrifice. And what I worry about in the United States is that this kind of rugged individualism of, you know, my civil liberties take primacy over everything else has now made these kinds of things like mask wearing hyper politicized, where you can basically well, set I, your watch uh, yeah. to the party affiliation. Well, of, I, listen, yeah. I got I to go, but I want to say one thing because I've got another appointment. Yeah. I'm set, I'll say this to what you just said. I don't believe that. I don't think, I think that people are angry, not because they're not willing to make sacrifices for their community. You know, a lot of the people that are you see out on these picket lines are military people who love our country, have been willing Absolutely. to make great sacrifices on behalf of the common good. And they are angry because they don't believe they've been consulted. They believe that there's an agenda they believe they're being told things that are not science-based and they don't want to be told what to do. If somebody tells 
I believe that 99% of those people, if you show them overwhelming science that says the masks are going to work, that they will absolutely immediately put them on. There's a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. What, you know, one of the bigger other questions is a lot of virologists say, look, the virus is here. It's going to have the same death rates in every country, no matter what you do. All countermeasures are just temporary. All they'll do is flatten the curve. But in the long run, two years from now, we're all going to have the same infection fatality rates. New Zealand can escape because it's an island and can just say, you know, nobody can come here. Eventually, it's going to have to open up and it's going to have the same infection. This is what the, you know, the, the, the health minister of Sweden said to New Zealand. He said, you're going to be in the same position as us. You're just going to destroy your economy in the process. Yeah. And I think people have those questions. They're legitimate questions. They have not been answered. They have not been debated. And we're told to shut up and do what you're told. And nobody likes that. It's not because of rugged individualism. And it's not because people, Americans don't have a sense of community. It's because this is not American democracy. It is authoritarianism. It's tyranny. And that's what they're revolting against. Not the mass, the tyrants. Fair enough. I got to run. Okay. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work you're doing. I would someday like to talk to you about censorship and the abridgment of First Amendment rights. Uh, And maybe we can save that for another time, because I know that that's an issue that you're passionate about. And it's obviously very connected to the conversation that we just had. So I hope to be able to to do that. And and uh, and thank you. Thank you for your work. And uh, may fact prevent. Thank you for listening to my interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. To learn more about his work and the work of the Children's Health Defense, you can go to childrenshealthdefense.org. And as always, feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. And of course, my mom loves to read the reviews on Apple Podcasts, so do me a favor. That's it from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.